From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Agriculture Department is moving to phase two of its back-to-work plan this week. A memo to employees says the agency will arrange for cleaning of elevators, restrooms, stairwells, break rooms, and other common areas twice a day. Federal News Network reports the agency will have supplies for employees to clean more often and to clean other services like printers, copiers, and conference rooms. The end of next fiscal year would be the deadline to close the Defense Department's Chief Management Officer office if a provision in the Senate's version of the National Defense Authorization Act becomes law. The bill calls for a performance improvement officer to take over some of the portfolio of the CMO. Defense News reports that official would report to the Deputy Secretary of Defense. Current CMO Lisa Hirschman is third on the org chart at the Pentagon now. The General Services Administration is lifting the limit on the STARS-2 contract. GSA is adding $7 billion to the $15 billion it originally scheduled for the small business set-aside. FCW reports GSA says all 787 contractors on STARS-2 will stay on the GWAC and agencies can place new task orders through next August. More than a third of Americans show clinical signs of anxiety, depression, or both since the coronavirus pandemic began, according to the Census Bureau. The Defense Health Agency has resources to support individuals in need and create a more positive culture around mental health. Nicholas Polizzi is action officer for the Real Warriors campaign at the Psychological Health Center of Excellence at the Defense Health Agency. Nick, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on. And there are two important pieces there, I think. One is the, the needs of the individual, and the other is the needs of the whole. And that cultural element is the piece of it that I think is important regarding the needs of the whole. What are you seeing as far as the overall need of the healthcare community and the defense community regarding mental health as a result of coronavirus. Right. So as we all know, and as you mentioned, coronavirus has led to, we're seeing increases in, in just day-to-day -day anxiety, concern, depression for healthcare workers, for their families, for the military. Um, it's all encompassing being on lockdown, um, being with the ones you love 24 seven in some cases, uh, that is really taking a toll. And what uh, my program, The Real Warriors Campaign is trying to do is to just normalize psychological health and psychological health care, psychological health care topics as just healthcare. You know, if you bang your elbow playing basketball on a Sunday, and it gets to be Friday and your elbow is still swollen, you'd probably say, eh, I got to go check this out. And you'd go to the doctor and that's normal. Whereas, you know, I think sometimes folks are reluctant or don't know where to go. If I'm using this as an example, they scream at their kids on a Monday morning and they're still irritable and angry and frustrated and they're, they're on their last nerve and it's Friday. Maybe that's a sign too that you should go get that checked out. And that's where Real Warriors campaign comes in. 
is this culture issue more difficult, do you think, to deal with in the military than it is in the civilian sector because of the, I, I note you attach the word warrior to this campaign, and I wonder if that, the, the historic warrior mentality is the driver behind whatever separation there is between what you're seeing in the military and what uh, healthcare providers see in the private, in the civilian sector. Perhaps. I, you know, one thing that many active duty service members, reservists, National Guard folks have to deal with, in addition to the stigma around seeking psychological health care and am I going to be perceived as weak, and just the reality of, well, now I have to go, who do I call? I have to make a phone call. I have to make an appointment. I have to go see somebody. What's that going to be all about? I, I don't have time for it. I got to miss work. On top of those normal sort of day-to-day -day, uh, barriers that everyone has to deal with, uh, the military has concerns. Is this going to, if I go see psychological health care, if I go seek treatment, am I going to lose my clearance? I'm, I'm, if I'm a flyer, will I be grounded? Will I get my weapon taken away? These are all legitimate questions that service members have to grapple with. And I would say that luckily the Real Warriors campaign is there at realwarriors.net. 24-7 to offer evidence-based, factual information that gets at the heart of the concerns of everybody in the military community and those who care about them. What is DHA doing to try to, I, I'd like the word that you used earlier, normalize mental health care. What are the steps that DHA is taking to do that? Well, I think this is one of them, is having these great programs like Real Warriors Campaign that are available 24-7 to anybody. It's you know your tax dollars at work. Getting the word out. We find that when somebody when somebody has a concern about a mental health, mental health issue, either about themselves or a loved one, a child, a coworker, that's the first step. But then they don't know where to go. They don't know what to do. And you know, the internet's the wild west. If you type in depression, it, it's you're not sure what you're gonna get. We would steer people to the Real Warriors campaign website, realwarriors.net, because there you're going to get all evidence-based, grounded in science information on a whole host of topics that are mental health in nature, depression, anxiety, and then what we call more gateway topics. Or, you know, we know that if someone's depressed, they're off, often having trouble sleeping. Well, let's just tackle the sleeping. We've got information on healthy finances, great relationships. And again, all evidence-based and grounded with the citations written at a way that anybody can understand. And that's a starting point. It's interesting to me that you mentioned as barriers a moment ago, some of the, some of the things that historically we've heard about as uh, being challenging for mental health support programs in the military but also just basic logistical things like I don't have time to go to the appointment and scheduling in, finding somebody to go talk to and those kinds of things. Is there something that you can do or are you doing something to help remove those barriers for people too and not just the cultural stuff that we talked about at the beginning? Absolutely, what you're describing is access to care. You know, um, it's, if, it's difficult to find a psychological health provider and then if you get to one, what if you don't click? Then you know, okay, well, I've tried that once. It, it's not going to work. What the DOD has with the Real Warriors campaign are buttons right on the website that someone could learn more about care opportunities in their area. 
and can figure out if they would like to get connected to care that way to eliminate the barriers. And then similarly, there's a, a sister program I work with known as In Transition, which if you're a service member or veteran of any flavor, regardless of time in service or categorization of discharge, if you're ready to get connected to mental health care, you just reach out to the In Transition program 24 seven, give them a call and they could help get you connected to care be it for the very first time or during a period of transition, like you're retiring or you're being mobilized or demobilizing. So those are two really great Real Warriors campaign and in transition, really great resources and programs that are out there and available, but they don't do anybody any good sitting on a fancy website, right? So I hope your viewers take this and start to figure out, would I wanna access this information? Will I go to realwarriors.net and take it from there? Nick, great resources there. Thank you very much for coming on and talking about them. I appreciate your time. You're very welcome. Thank you. Up next, leveraging digital training as a solution for remote employees. Straight ahead on Government Matters, best practices for getting the most out of digital training. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. Even though some agencies are opening buildings again, they want to keep telework options in place. Digital training could help agencies explore the new digital landscape of federal agencies. Kathy Pham is co-founder and mentor at Mozilla. She's a former founding member of the U.S. Digital Service. Kathy, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What are you seeing agencies being able to leverage moving forward to keep training active and, and current in a digital environment? Yeah, I think it's more critical now than ever for agencies to take into account what the community really, really needs during this time to understand um, what uh, all the citizens really need during times of crisis and a pandemic and to get out there into the, the community. And I think that's where having really strong digital talent in either user experience research or product management um, to go and, and really combine the technology alongside the, um, the needs of people and to deeply understand human-centered design and user experience and, and not just build for what um, a small group of people in the community somewhere thinks that uh, we, we really need during this time. And I think that's there's a lot of opportunity for a lot of government agencies to really step up what we do with tech. Some of the terms that you use there are terms that I, I think about or hear about in software development. Agile is another one, and, and there are many others. Do those apply in the training environment too, or do they apply only to the extent that you develop software to deliver training solutions? Um, they absolutely apply in the training environment, whether it's... Um, when I hear agile, I think what I really tend to think about is agile is a term, it can be used in lots of different ways. And it's really the idea of being able to pivot and iterate and change. So let's say we go down a path and we think we know the solution to a piece of technology at the Small Business Administration or um, um, Department of Homeland Security, et cetera. And we go down the path and we're like, oh no, we've now talked to so many people and we realize that's not the right path to go down. And within a few weeks, not months, not years, within a few weeks, we're able to pivot 
um, what it is that we're, 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 we're building. And same with um, human-centered design and focusing on the people in our building process. It's all part of the training as, as well. And Dana Chisnell actually has a great um, um, class she teaches, but also uh, does a lot of work around designing policies um, with the human and the community at the center and not just you know a few of us inside our offices in DC or somewhere else making these decisions on behalf of everyone else. Where do agencies, in your view, miss the mark now on the way that they present training opportunities to their employees, Kathy? I would say, so one, I had gone from the private sector into the public sector for about four years with USDS. And one thing that was so heartened to see was how so many public servants deeply understood the people who needed government services. So folks at the Veterans Affairs on the ground at um, different VA centers um, or folks at SBA who really understood what small businesses need. And that part is so powerful. It's honestly a piece that I think the private sector can learn from. But then the missing piece oftentimes is how to tie that part to the technology piece. And it's almost like they're separate. It's like someone comes in and builds a technology and there are these people who understand the humans and we keep them separate. So I think there's something really powerful about bringing those two pieces together. What have you seen as the most effective ways to do that? Certainly somebody during the time that you were in government figured it out to some degree. What did you see that worked, Kathy? Not to somebody. There are so so many, not just with USDS and 18F and others. There are, there are folks, I think, meeting so many other people who've been government for a while, too. I think something that I've seen work well is going to, to listen, um, getting out of, let's say, our offices were um, in D.C., going on site on the ground to see what doctors at the Veterans Affairs were seeing or to see what um, various immigration sites around the world were, were doing and to sit with people, to do a bit of the term ethnographic research, to sit with people, just to observe what is it like in your day to day so that when I build a technology, I'm not making up what your experience is. I can see, you know, you're a doctor dealing with a spinal cord injury patient, trying to deal with the healthcare system and doing it all at once. Or you're someone working with a bunch of refugees and it's a really chaotic environment. There's no internet access that's reliable. And now you've given this piece of technology. <laughs> what are you, or go out into the field with our um, service women and men and see what life is like with them as we try to build technology that works within their lives. And I've seen that work well with people who've taken the time. It could be just two weeks to go take the time to understand the communities that we're building um, for. Is a term we use, I'm sure you probably have heard it, um, called design with users and not for them. So it's this idea that we don't build something and impose it on people. The people who we're designing for are very much part of this process as well. We have about a minute left, Kathy. How would you advise agencies to step back a year from now or two years from now, at some point in the future, and judge whether the uh, advances that they've tried to push through in digital training have worked? Yeah, I think the first thing is um, when, we, when we try to assess in the future to make sure we understand where we are now. So today, do kind of a landscape analysis of where we are with digital technologies and the environment that we're in. And then uh, we can have training on digital or engineering or product management user experience and then circle back later um, and do an evaluation. But we can't do that unless we also know where we're at 
today. And, and that's probably something to, to consider right now. Kathy, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to have you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Up next, creating a network to slow the opioid epidemic. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the partnerships and the people getting people the help they need. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Opioid overdoses have taken the lives of roughly 400,000 people since 1999. The solution to the opioid crisis appears to be coordination with healthcare professionals and law enforcement. Dr. Vikram Krishnasamy is medical officer at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. He's a finalist for a Service to America medal in the Emerging Leaders category. Vikram, thanks very much for coming on the program. Normally when I start these conversations with your colleagues who are finalists for Sammy's, I say, what was the problem you're trying to solve? The problem here is pretty obvious. How did you take this approach to working with law enforcement professionals and getting health care providers more involved in this equation? Yeah, yeah. One of the things we realized early on is that the problem that we're facing with the opioid overdose epidemic is just massive in scale. And so as we try to determine pathways or ideas or strategies in how we address the crisis, we started talking with our law enforcement colleagues and what they said to us is that we routinely conduct uh, operations or enforcement actions against providers or healthcare providers who may be prescribing opioids outside of what we, we say in the healthcare land is acceptable. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we thought when we had these conversations with our law enforcement partners that it would be a good idea to collaborate and determine how we can ensure that those patients that are affected when a healthcare provider uh, may have an action taken against them has has an opportunity to see another provider and get the health care that they deserve. What was that communications process like at the beginning? Did you know that was the goal that you were setting out to achieve? Or was at the beginning, was the, was the dialogue just centered around how we understand what the other person can do for us, what the health care provider can do for us as law enforcement, what the law enforcement uh, uh, people can do for us as health care providers? Early on, we had conversations with our federal law enforcement partners, including the Drug Enforcement Agency uh, and the HHS Office of Inspector General. And, and we simply said, hey, how can we best help each other? We all realize that this is an issue that exceeds the, the ability of any one of our agencies to address the crisis. Uh, and, and the conversations got going from there and, and ultimately led to what I think has been a, a great program. The, uh, the, the biography from the Partnership Public Service website uh, writes about you, Krishnasamy's most lauded achievement, bringing together public health officials and law enforcement on the opioid crisis was as much grounded in interpersonal and communication skills as it was in medicine. What was the most important element to building the trust in those relationships so that the law enforcement officials knew that you were headed in the same direction as them and vice versa? I think to me and, and, and probably to all of us is that we're all trying to protect the health of all American citizens here. And, and the way to do that is to really make sure that our agency missions and objectives are aligned. Uh, so, so to me, that was the initial starting point. And, and I think everybody was on the same page with that. So the big bang here is uh, the arrest in 2019, 60 doctors, pharmacists, and other medical professionals in six states. I imagine your part of that was what happens to the people 
the patients that those healthcare providers were treating when those healthcare providers are no longer providing them with the, with the drugs that they were seeking. Yeah, it's, it's exactly right. What we tried to do is ensure that our federal law enforcement colleagues had good conversations and had relationships with our state health department colleagues that were really at the forefront of ensuring that these patients are protected and have access to health care. In years past, that may not have always been the case. And so what we tried to do is really make sure that those relationships are in place and so that each side feels comfortable talking to each other. A lot of this information is, is protected and what you don't want to happen is for a healthcare provider to find out that an enforcement action is going to be taken uh, against them before the action actually occurs. And so we did we did a lot of relationship building and and the outcome I think has been successful. What is next for this process, Vikram? Is this something you apply to another type of controlled substance that has uh, presented challenges to the healthcare community? Is this something that you are able to scale larger, both of those, something else? I think it's a combination. What we're trying to do uh, as we move forward in, in the months to come is really ensure that those relationships between our federal law enforcement partners and sister agencies are in place with all 50 states. Now, certainly we have we have other priorities right now too as a nation as we address the, the COVID-19 pandemic, but, but we do uh, hope to address and continue to address the opioid crisis as we move forward. We have a little bit more than a minute left. What does this mean for you personally, for you and your team? to get a recognition like this for the work that you've done? This is simply amazing. I think the work that the partnership does is incredible. You know, I, I go to work and our team goes to work every day trying to do our job and trying to do it well. And I think it speaks to the power of a strong government workforce that's capable and motivated and, and the opportunities we have to do incredible work across the country. Vikram, congratulations on your selection. To, congrats to you and your team. Thanks very much for coming on the program. Thank you very much for having me. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters Podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.